Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And this is Speaking of Race. So we are super excited to have with us today Dr. Melissa Grayboys, who is an assistant professor in Clark Honors College here at the University of Oregon. She's a historian of modern Africa and of global health. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So you work primarily in East Africa on colonialism and illness in the 19th and, and really the 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. That's a very broad overview. Can you tell us a little bit more about your main area of research? Definitely. I work primarily from 1900 onwards in East Africa, which is Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, includes the island of Zanzibar. And my first book was about the history of human experimentation in East Africa and really looking at British colonial interventions and public health interventions, medical experiments that involved human subjects from 1900 onwards. More generally, the things that I'm kind of interested in are about how Africans interact with European biomedical systems, how medical technologies come in and get adapted and adopted and used in ways that are new and exciting and very different than what people initially anticipated. And I'm really interested in moments of conflict. Um, when things go really wrong was what initially caught my attention when I was working on my first book. So what happens when you're running a malaria experiment and people burn down your research facility? Um, that's a really big moment of conflict. And what I drew my interest in there was a more sympathetic reading and understanding of what both sides were experiencing and what they understood about the event that actually led to those kind of large conflicts or miscommunication. I think about my work now that I'm interested in colonial structures and institutions, global institutions and structures now around, around public health, but really local understandings of them and that huge gap that can exist between how a scientist envisions a project in Geneva or Atlanta or London, and then how it's actually experienced and understood by the subjects and community members who are participating in it. How do you see race becoming an issue? We, we talk sometimes in this podcast about um, intersections between race and medicine. Do you see that becoming a big issue when you have European physicians and scientists going to East Africa? Definitely. So, I mean, they're colonial subjects because every uh, post-World War I, um, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda are all controlled by the British. And there's actually a lot of overlaps in medical expertise and medical services. And people who are experts in malaria or sleeping sickness or lymphatic filariasis are being flown out from or boated out um, from the UK. And they're coming in and they're moving through the entire region as experts. And a lot of their work is involving touching African bodies and taking samples from bodies, blood samples, skin snips, stool samples, urine samples, like actual pieces of people's bodies that they mm. were giving. And I think that was hugely profoundly important that they were primarily European males doing this to Africans and often African women too. So I think there's both a race and gender component that added an extra charge, an extra element of fear and suspicion to what was going on. But interestingly, around the time of independence in the early 1960s in East Africa, as that's happening, you have the first wave of African-trained doctors and medical researchers. And one of the things that really surprised me that I found was the writings of some of this first wave of African researchers and doctors and how they actually drew on their kind of cultural expertise and insider knowledge to do things that were more suspect than the Europeans could have ever gotten away with. Wow, um, like what? 
Well, they talked about how you could be more essentially coercive in your recruitment strategies if you said certain things or if you used different type of language or if you bypassed asking women and you went directly to their husbands because they knew that husbands would consent even if the women in the household were not interested. Um, so if it was blood samples for children who had lymphatic filariasis or who had bilharzia or who had malaria, rather than going to the mother who might be protective and say, no, I don't know who you are, a white European male who I've never seen before, who I may never see again, this male doctor, African doctor, talked about how you just need to go to the the husband. You need to go to the male of the household and he'll give permission for this to be done. So kind of cultural knowledge that I thought was really interesting that showed their full commitment to biomedical systems and also a way, a different way of leveraging cultural knowledge that was not around greater sensitivity per se. And that, that surprised me. And I, I know that wasn't the trend across all spaces and times for African doctors, but it popped up multiple cases. Hmm. So what's happening to the information to the samples and the data that's coming out of those samples, both during the colonial period and after. What are they actually doing with this research? Yeah, so one of the largest trials was kind of a pseudo public health epidemiological trial that was what are the diseases affecting East Africans, essentially. Let's get a picture of what is ailing people, which sounds not like a terrible idea. Like, how can you direct scarce public health resources if you don't know what is affecting most people and keeping in mind what you had effective treatments for at that time period? So they went around and they collected tens of thousands of samples from Africans across um, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda trying to determine malaria rates, um, filariasis rates, bilharzia rates, um, onchocerasis rates to figure out like what's our most important disease, what can we actually tackle? The problem, um, there were many problems, but one of the problems was who's taking the samples and what do people understand about it? So is it research? Is it treatment? What did they get out of this encounter? But then what happened to the samples afterwards and did people ever get treatment? Well, they didn't. So mm -hmm. it's surprising, but maybe not surprising because it's the colonial era and it's under-resourced and what is their real commitment to treating Africans who are ill? Oh, we found out you have malaria, you have bilharzia, you have um, sleeping sickness, oh, interesting, that's a new piece of data for us and it's a new way for us to understand this region, but there's nothing really we're going to do for you as an individual. It was really rare that any sort of research ever translated into direct treatment or improvement for individual Africans who were participating, which I think is the fundamental injustice of when you think about medical research, either past or present, who benefits from it and in what ways, if they're bearing the risk of participation and just the bodily inconvenience of having to participate, what do they get in return? Mm -hmm. So the ostensible goal of this work was epidemiological. They were really interested in like frequency and natural history of these diseases? It was shifting. It was okay. shifting terrain because they realized it was a bigger project than they could answer. How could they actually get a really accurate picture of this huge region that is environmentally very diverse, disease ecologically extremely diverse, very different patterns of what's going on. And they were going to try to make some mass generalizations that they could never get to. So the initial goal was about what ails the African, what's out there. And then as they got 
got deeper into specific issues, they made cases for disease-specific offshoots and research centers. So they had a malaria-specific research center, one around bilharzia, um, one around lymphatic filariasis, and they tried to direct their energies and sell people both in the UK and in East Africa on the idea that they could do disease elimination or control in a meaningful way. And that was the new goal, but none of those goals were ever really achieved. And in fact, as colonial scientists who were more critical of the endeavor looked at their own data, they realized that their data couldn't tell them what they wanted to figure out. So it wasn't planned well, it wasn't randomized. They weren't randomly picking the places that they were sampling. They would go where there was a chief that was friendly. They would go where there were roads that they could pass year round, which means that you're not gonna be in the most remote places. You're not gonna be in the rainiest places. You already have a different disease ecosystem that you're gonna be you know, sampling from, so. So what's the present day version of this. I mean, it seems like there's lots of NGOs that are worried about continuing to do some of the similar sorts of work, but they don't do it the same way, right? What are the differences now versus the way that it was done during that early post-colonial period? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So there's huge strides that have been made that really things that were clearly unethical that were happening in the 40s, 50s, and 60s along the lines of um, forcing people, rounding them up and forcing them to give blood samples or skin snips or to be stripped down and physically looked at to see what their body looked like to check for any diseases. That's not happening. I mean, in the 40s and 50s, it was to the point that people were fined, that chiefs would fine them. Um, There was threats of imprisonment. Um, One British researcher in Kenya that I write about in the book actually wanted to see if he could change the law in Kenya so that anyone who refused to participate in his blood trial could be jailed. So you think about the robustness of our consent process today and our respect for individual autonomy that we have all these checks. And that was something that even though it was post-World War II, so the Nuremberg trial had happened, we had the Nuremberg Code. And British researchers were well aware of the tenets of informed, understanding, voluntary consent. That really was not what happened in a majority of the cases. It was insidious and it was very coercive and it was very... Um, undermining of individual autonomy. That's different today. So I have never heard of those same kind of tactics being used to recruit people today. I think that international NGOs are much more aware and sensitive to that. That's partially because of IRBs and federal regulations here in the U.S. and in the European Union. It's also national research review boards in essentially every African country, and they're very active and robust in East Africa, about policing and make sure it's ethically and culturally appropriate. On the other hand, if you talk to East Africans about the research that they're participating in today, there's a huge amount of therapeutic misconception. So a huge gap in why somebody thinks they're participating in research and the benefit they believe they're going to be getting out of it versus the reality that research is not done for a benefit of the individual and an NGO or a for-profit company's willingness to tell that to a subject in no uncertain terms. So that's, to me, where I see a really, really big problem. So you're, you're never supposed to get anything real out of a Hollywood film. <laughs> but this makes me think of the movie The Constant Gardener. Mm-hmm. So they find out that a big pharmaceutical company is basically using Africans as guinea pigs to test these drugs, and there isn't going to be any benefit mm-hmm. for the Africans. The takeaway, I guess, is that Big Pharma is willing to go to any lengths 
and does not have any regard at all for people of African descent. And they see them as pools of experimental subjects for testing drugs. But tell me that that's not accurate anymore, that that's not really the way that it is. I think that the points that the movie makes are true in some ways. And I would say that the exploitative factor to me is not just that African bodies are being used as data points, essentially, as, as a pool of human subjects, because they're cheaper to recruit, they're faster to recruit, they typically don't have any other drugs that are going to interfere with tested drugs if we're in phase one or two trials. The problem is, what are they getting out of it long term? So let's say the new drug is actually effective. Is it a drug that's effective for a disorder that's affecting people in East Africa that they need. And then let's say it is, it's for a disorder that they're suffering from and they do need this new medical X. Is it actually going to be made available in East Africa at a price that the subject population can ever get access to? And this is a real big question for me. What are the three principles that really undergird effective ethical human experimentation Distributive justice is a big part of that for me. Um, so that means is every subject population equally sharing in the risks that come from participating in research and equally reaping the benefits that come from new technologies and medicines when we are successful in doing that. And I think what we see in Latin America, in Africa, in Eastern Europe increasingly, Poland and Russia, um, is that these are considered pools. These are great populations to endure the risks that come with research, but they're not the populations that we turn to to make sure that they have access to the benefits that also come from research. Just this week, I feel like there was a news story about these two companies that had low-cost medications that they were selling to African populations. It was rotavirus uh -huh. medication, and then they just sort of decided they're not going to do it anymore because <laughs> they can make more money in China than they can in Africa, even though Africans were the test subjects, it seems like, yeah. for a lot of these drugs. I think it's it, it's huge. In East Africa, diarrheal diseases for under fives is like our number one killer. <laughs> so do they need rotavirus vaccines? Absolutely. Do they need treatment? Absolutely. Do drug companies think that it's important for them to sell it there? Not necessarily. What was the phrase that you used a minute ago? Therapeutic misconception, I think, uh -huh. was what you said. I run into that problem all the time when I'm doing work in India and Brazil, both. I have to spend a lot of time explaining to people that I'm not that kind of doctor and that I'm asking these questions because they might tell us in the long run some interesting things about how people are experiencing food insecurity or diabetes or mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. But I run into that a lot. And I'm trying really hard not to give people that idea. Do you have that issue also? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to say, you know, therapeutic misconception as a general concept around, do you understand why research is being done and what you're going to get out of it? That's global. That's not unique to East Africans. Here in the United States, there's often really, really high therapeutic misconception rates about people who have already enrolled in trials. So in terms of field work, Absolutely. I spent so much time telling people after I had this very thorough consent process, we would start doing the interview and I would interview them about the history of human experimentation and had they ever given blood? Had they ever talked to a researcher or a doctor? Did they know about any of these big trials? And then they would look at me and say, and my arm is really hurt. Can you look at my arm and fix my arm? And I'd go, I'm not a doctor. Like, I can't do that. Yeah. I can help you get to a hospital. I can inform you about different places, but... 
I think that it, it was a constant. And to me in Swahili, it was really interesting because the word um, for research wasn't well defined in terms of medical research versus social science research. And somebody who didn't have um, familiarity with an American academic system and what a PhD was and what I was doing as a graduate student, it really made no sense why I was out there and why I was asking these questions. And I think I felt uh, morally challenged by this frequently because I thought, what am I giving back? I'm not that different than these colonial researchers who would come in and take blood samples and skin snips and stool samples and run away and do their research because it was their data that they needed for the questions that they thought were important. And what did they return to people? And I often thought about that as a social scientist. Here I am. I'm learning from people. I'm taking their time. They're informing me about their histories and the experiences that they've had. And what am I going to do with that? How do I return some sort of benefit to the people or the communities that have spent time educating me about this topic? So one of the things that you talk about in your book is that though there is this long history, well predating even the post-colonial period in the middle of the 20th century, of people from Western countries running research projects in Africa, and then really a history of abuse when it comes to that sort of stuff. Despite that, you sort of argue that it doesn't mean that we should cut off research. It doesn't mean that we should even necessarily turn away from doing research in Africa, even Westerners doing research in Africa. Can you say more about that? Why do you think that's the conclusion that we should reach from this history of having abuse in research in Africa? Yeah, I spent a long time trying to figure out how to conclude this book. After you write about something that you realize is unethical, and it's really been a history of injustices. And the more I thought about it, I kept coming back to, we do research with the hope that we're going to discover something new, with the hope that we're actually going to have the capacity to improve conditions for people and treat ailments that we can't treat right now. And I think those are very noble intentions. And that for as corrupted of a system we may have around global pharmaceuticals and healthcare systems, and insurance today and who has access to drugs and who should get access. And I think there's tons of questions around that. We still have to be optimistic um, and idealistic in some way about what research can do. And it still has positive potential. And I think that in the same ways that certain communities in the United States are often excluded from research, African-Americans, women, um, other commun minority communities, that they miss out on reaping the benefits. And the benefits are, if you're a community that suffers primarily from hypertension, what are new new things to treat hypertension or a new disorder that as we don't get attention and test on those populations, we don't get any new therapies either. So I think that in some ways, I, I guess I see connections with the benefits or the exploitation of why do we do research in Africa or Latin America or Eastern Europe and then how do they get access to those things afterwards? If we had a system that actually had that last stage, which is providing access, then we could get rid of some of the exploitation and injustice that's part of that system right now. We could deal with that. We could figure out a way to get around that. So I think that maybe the conclusion is naive, but it came back to me as a feeling of idealism about it's a system that maybe isn't working as well as it should today, but it could still benefit people globally. Is it the case that there's a kind of economic, almost like a trap in the system where we need populations in order to do the drug tests? We want to have those populations come at as low of a cost as possible. 
And then we want to turn around and sell the drugs that are developed through these tests at as high of a cost as possible. So that usually the populations that the tests are done on are chosen because they're cheap. Yes. And the populations they're sold to are chosen because they're people that have economic resources. So is it in this sort of capitalist, globalist, pharmaceutical model, are we doomed to be in this situation where we're always looking for black and brown bodies to run experiments on and then turn around and sell those drugs to white and increasingly Chinese and Japanese and Vietnamese populations? Right now, that's the way the system is working, but I think that there's ways to have checks in it. And I think about it specifically in the medical research stage is what I think maybe we have a little bit more flexibility because it's actually a fairly well-monitored and tightly regulated system, both in the United States and also in the EU. And those are the big markets for drugs. So any pharmaceutical company is going to have to follow those rules quite quite carefully if they want to be able to bring a new drug to market and make a lot of money off of it. So the places that I see the possibilities is um, Johanna Crane in her book, Scrambling for Africa, she writes about antiretrovirals being tested in Uganda and they're successful. It's It's a great trial and it's well done in the sense that local people get access to life-saving antiretrovirals by participating in this trial. And that is access to a resource that they would not have had access to otherwise. The problem is that what happened afterwards? It was successful and the trial ended and everyone who was on antiretrovirals, you're done. The trial is over. The funding has ended. And that is a terrible, mm-hmm. <laughs> unsustainable, unethical model that I think we absolutely have to move away from. You can't ever start somebody on life-saving therapy and tell them six months or two years later, thank you for all that information. It's been fascinating to see how well you uh, took to these drugs and now we're done. And I think that they, they've introduced some interesting strategies where there are pools of funding now where once people get started on ARVs, they have to be permanently kept on them. So you start as a research trial participant. That means until you die, you have access to those drugs. And it's been funded by drug companies that are doing research in those areas. And I think that is something that I would I would like to see. And I think that that's a model that could be rolled out for other drugs in the future. So it, does that require um, governmental and intergovernmental bodies basically requiring that? Yeah. So they have to remain relatively robust and calling for these sorts of regulations of companies that are maybe headquartered in their countries but are doing their experimentation in places that the governmental bodies don't have jurisdiction over. It would be a lot of oversight and it would be infrastructure that doesn't exist right now. The only times I've seen this happen is very small pilot programs, Southeast Asia. I think it was in Thailand. It was essentially voluntary because there was Mm. so much backlash and upset. I mean, people were were upset with how these trials were being run, and I think rightly so. And I think that's a good model for the future. I haven't seen other things because I think if you leave it to drug companies on their own, what you get is this rotavirus example, which is it sounds great for a few years, and then they just pull out and say, I'm done. And that hasn't been the case. Oncocoriasis is really an interesting example in sub-Saharan Africa. They have had ongoing subsidized support, and with Gavi, the um, vaccine coalition, they buy it subsidized rates. They try to make it available across sub-Saharan Africa to make it more lucrative for pharmaceutical companies to sell. It's a really big, interconnected, messy, unethical um, system that runs right now. And I think we have to look for just small places where we can insert the right legislation to create a little bit more equity in, in the process. That was a really good description. So in this podcast, we spend a fair amount of time 
looking at ideas about race as natural categories and how those got perpetuated in the U.S. and elsewhere historically. Or we're trying to do this increasingly in various parts of the world. And so we were really excited about you being able to talk a little bit about what this has looked like in East Africa, which is a part of the world we haven't addressed on the podcast yet. One of our previous guests, Dr. Hillary Green, talked about the experimentation that went on on African bodies during slavery in the United States. And one thing that came out of that discussion a little bit was the irony inherent in the fact that during that period of time, there are plenty of scholars and human biologists and natural historians out there making this argument that people of African descent were so incredibly different from people of European descent that they might even be separate species from one another. Yet, she made the point, they were similar enough that when it came to medical research and experimentation, even experimental surgeries and things like that, white physicians thought they could draw conclusions based on black bodies that would still apply to white bodies. So there's this slippage that goes on where it's convenient sometimes to see these categories of people that were very distinct at the time as similar. And yet it's also convenient to make the argument that they're so very different. Mm -hmm. Does that shake out in your field site? Yes. Absolutely. So I think that in East Africa, because we have British colonialism going on, the British are masters of essentializing and constructing racial categories and wanting them to maintain really strict, clear boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I love working in Zanzibar because it's cosmopolitan, it's small, and it is so mixed over multiple centuries of contact with the Indian Ocean world. The British get there after the Omanis have have controlled it and the Portuguese before that. The British get there and they cannot make sense of Zanzibar and it drives them crazy because they try to categorize everyone. Are you an African? Are you an Asian? Are you an Indian? Are you an Arab? And they start to get these lists of categories that do not fit neatly in racial categories at that point of time. And they realize that they're going down a rabbit hole and they can't figure out how to get themselves out of it. Because if they ask Zanzibaris, what are you? Or what is your tribe? Or what is your ethnicity? They got these really precise, finite answers that drove the British crazy. And they would say, I'm actually Omani from three generations ago and I'm living in Zanzibar right now and my wife is from Pemba and these are my connections. And then the British colonial official would be there with his notebook and he would jot down African. (laughs) (laughs) Or he would look at the person and he'd go, well, are you from India? And they'd say, no, I'm not from India. I'm from, you know, wherever. And they'd go, Asian. So Hmm. it's really fascinating. I've worked a lot in the Zanzibar National Archives and I just finished a paper about um, diet, institutional diet inside the colonial lunatic asylum and the prison. And what's interesting is in the prison, they have a racialized diet from the time it's established in the early 1900s and it's African, Asian, European. Whoa. And those are the strict hard, fast categories. And if you look across East Africa and South Africa, those are always the three categories. You always have to have a European diet because Europeans cannot eat the same things that anyone else eats. Two, Asians are fundamentally different than Africans in what their body needs. And Africans have different tastes and nutritional needs than Asians. So how this actually plays out in terms of diet is, of course, The Europeans get the most food, they get the most variety of foods, they get the most fats, they get the most proteins. The Asians are next. They get more fats, more proteins, 
more number of ingredients than Africans get. But there's certain food items in the same way that they essentialize race, certain food items are associated and essentialized with that racial category. Hmm. So Asians eat chapatis. So you always have to have a chapati in whatever the diet is. But do Africans get chapatis? No. Africans don't eat chapatis. But if you go to Zanzibar, Africans are eating chapatis. And African prisoners are complaining that they want chapatis because outside of the prison, they eat them. Their wives make them for them. And then you get complaints from Africans writing into the colonial officials saying, hello, I'm actually not African. I would like to be placed on the Asian diet. Hmm. You've miscategorized me. So they're playing the game. They realize there's only three categories. European is out of bounds. No one gets that. But they recognize the Asian diet is better. If they can say, well, I had a grandfather who was from here and we immigrated from there and we eat coconuts at my house, that maybe they can leverage it to get more food and to get better food. And I think that there's so many great examples in Zanzibar being so multi-ethnic of throughout the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, post-abolition, because there's a huge number of slaves from the African mainland that are freed and want to become part of a very, very hierarchical society. So they quickly get rid of their African names from the mainland. They became Muslims. They start dressing differently. They start eating differently. And they change their racial identity. They claim to be something very different than they would have been 10 years prior as a way of making a different social claim. It's really, Zanzibar is such an amazing place to think about how much subject populations can actually undercut some of those really strict dominating narratives around race and how much flexibility they can actually create on the ground. That's really good. That's Do really we have, cool. Is there anything else we want to ask? So my last question is for both of you to some extent. One of the things I really like about your work, Melissa, is that it does move between a historical perspective and a present day perspective. And I think both of you, Melissa and Eric, do that very well in your own work. And so I'd like to hear a little bit from each of you about what that historical perspective that you employ tells us about the present day, especially around issues of race and science and racism. Um, Melissa and I, I think, as we were talking about earlier, have both been accused of being presentist in our in our history. And so we do see a lot of value in what goes on in the present. But I don't know. I think history provides a kind of rich pool of alternative ways of seeing the world that you don't always get if you're just examining things in the present, meaning that there's a lot of stuff that has happened that you don't really have a clear view on from the perspective of the the present. Like you have to go back and actually see how people thought about themselves and about other people, how they categorized racial categories and things like that in the past. This is what Melissa was just talking about a second ago when looking through archives and recognizing that difficulty of even doing the categorization process for the the British scientists. Um, I also think that history constantly surprises us. Things that we just take for granted in the present turn out not to have been always the case. And for me anyway, one of the things I love about that discovery process is recognizing that even things that you think are just firmly established in the present and that we will never change you know, uh, just a few years ago, just a few decades ago, sometimes just a few centuries ago, those things were actually different. And that gives me a, a lot of hope that there are not very many fixed categories in the present that cannot be changed at all, no matter how bleak things look sometimes. I feel optimistic too. I think that what history brings to this is that we realize a lot of these debates aren't new. Like as a medical historian, I'm constantly struck 
by how similar some of the statements and things that I read that were from 1900. Things about the ethical nature of whether to ask for consent when giving an arsenic-based treatment that could hurt someone because of the side effects. And if I didn't tell you it was from 1915 and the Belgian Congo, it could be from today. I like putting history in dialogue with the present because I think it can help us be optimistic and realize that some of the debates we're entrenched in aren't new. And maybe that's pessimistic because we haven't solved some of those Yeah, that can be pessimistic. But maybe it's optimistic too that we're continuing to engage and ask ourselves the hard questions. And even if we don't perfectly resolve them, that there's a committed faction of people in just about any place or time that are questioning dominant categories and that are even in big systems like colonial structures are questioning from within and that you find a lot more heterogeneity within big systems that we like to talk about as being really homogeneous, that we find that critique. We find people asking those hard questions early, early on. So I also think that that attributes a little bit of agency to the people who are participating in these systems. For me, I write about subjects in medical research, but I hate that term because they're not just subject to things. Part of what I really discovered was how much agency people retained, even as colonial subjects, even as women, even as... Uh, people in in an asylum were able to petition for better food by going on a hunger strike. That's an amazing amount of agency against a very large colonial structure and system. So thinking about history allows me to help reconstruct those voices that aren't captured and to help attribute a little bit of agency in places where we might not expect to find it. It's a history love fest here. This is great. <laughs> um, okay. I feel like we could ask 10 million more questions, but we probably shouldn't. Melissa, Gray Boys, thank you so much for coming on Speaking of Race. We'll make sure to link to Melissa's book in the show notes as well as some of her papers. Thank you. I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian of science. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with the second installment of our Race and Intelligence series. We are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. We're not on Spotify. Damn it. No, keep going. We want to be on Spotify. We're on all the places where you get podcasts. 